Well, good morning. I get to preach this morning after that, so your minds will be so torn and uh, have no, won't even listen to me. That's great. Um, but I'm going to try to do what I can to get your mind off of this exciting news, I promise. If uh, you come tonight, pay, you'll be able to pay attention. You'll be able to uh, hear more about that um, and talk about that and pray about that. So to, to get our minds off of that, let me, let me, can I tell you a story, um, jump into something that maybe you can uh, click with? Um, this, is, this is a story all about how that my, my life got twisted, turned upside down. I'd like to take a minute and just sit right there. Let me tell you how I became the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> they don't teach you to quote 90 sitcom, sermon, uh, 90 sitcom songs in ser- at seminary, but I do what I can for you because I love you. Um, I could go on. In West Philadelphia, born and raised. <laughs> but this is on tape, and I don't want to have that go on. <laughs> um, let me tell you. Uh, about my childhood hero. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I had a, a childhood hero that I looked up to, that I saw as uh, the one whom would, would give me inspiration on, on how to deal with tough situations, um, particularly at the playground, when you had the, the, the playground bully make fun of you um, and, and what, how to respond to that. And my childhood hero was none other than Hulk Hogan. Going back to the 90s again. Yes, that's right. Twice in the first couple sentences here. Uh, but you think of the Hulk Hogan. That's right. Everyone know who I'm talking about? Um, he was the balding man um, that uh, wore spandex, uh, actually wore a Speedo in yellow um, and was glistening all the time. Um, and, uh, I mean, he was a bad man, right? He, w- he was intense. He was the Hulk. He worked for uh, or he wrestled for the WWF, the World Wrestling Federation, and he would never lose, Right? He would just always win. And um, one of the reasons I love the Hulk, um, I mean, besides him being the Hulk, I mean, it was just so much fun to wrestle. Like, it was like, I can do that. I can wrestle. I can, I can, we had these little wrestling dolls that we had as, not dolls. I didn't play with dolls. We had wrestling buddies, is what he called them, that we would take off the, the, the top of the bunk and jump down onto, just like uh, Knox probably does now. Um, and so that was about the age when I, be- I came into wrestling and started loving it. Uh, and one time, I actually got to meet my childhood hero. And if you ever have ever done this, it doesn't ever live up to the expectation, right? <laughs> you go to meet your childhood hero. We go to the, we, we're, we're in, living in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And we go to, I'm guessing, a convention center of some sort. Uh, and we go watch him play, play, wrestle, um, fake wrestle, whatever it is. Um, and, he, and he would, you know, afterwards, we go backstage to meet, the Hulk Hogan, the Hulk. Um, and so I'm like a kid, this yay high. And he's the Hulk Hogan. And he just finished wrestling. And he was really shiny, is what I remember. <laughs> they lather him up with stuff that has a side effect of like smelling like peppermint. And I just remember like, Dad, he smells like peppermint. Shh. <laughs> um, but, like, the most disturbing part was that you're, like, this tall, and he's this tall, and he's wearing a Speedo. And so it's, like, sight lines uh, were not good. <laughs> so it was just not my favorite uh, experience. Um, I don't know why. Uh, but what if, despite all of that, despite all of that, my hero, you, you mimic your hero, right? You mimic your hero despite some of the bad stuff. You mimic, you do what they do. And one of the Hulk's signature moves when he was close to being down and out, when he was on the, on the floor and the ref hits one, 
two, and he gets up. And the theme song goes, I am a real American. <laughs> Fight for the right. <laughs> He's like, every man. <laughs> okay, I'm doing all this just to get your mind off what we talked about earlier. Okay. Um, but then he gets up, and then what his signature move is this. He gets his eyes big, and then he breathes heavily. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> and he's in berserk mode, and you can't stop him. He always wins when he goes into berserk mode. And so after watching that <laughs> hero do that, I now go to my playground. <laughs> and, you know, kids are, kids are mean. Kids can, kids can be mean. I was, I was the fat kid growing up. It sucked. The pain was real. And people would make fun of me for some other things. I'd be like, that was kind of funny. Um, but if they ever made fun of, um, you know, my weight, it, it, it hurt. And then all of a sudden I went into the Hulk mode and I just went, <laughs> and just went crazy. And oddly enough, that didn't strike fear into the heart of my enemies. <laughs> They're just like, he's so weird. <laughs> then I get on him and I punch him and I'd win. Um, transition. Do you remember your bullies? Do you remember the person that whom you, you uh, fought with on the playground when you heard people say, fight, fight, fight? Maybe it wasn't a childhood bully because not everyone has that physical bully per se, but every single one of us in this room has had somebody with whom we would uh, conflict with. Someone, whether it be a bully, whether it be a family member, whether it be an ex-friend or even an ex, with whom is your felt enemy? Who is your felt enemy? God is asking us for an impossible love for that person this morning. Please stand as God calls us to worship, to read Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Maybe see. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this morning, as we prayed earlier, matters. Lord, that you would speak to us this morning. So whether we've we've already tuned out and we've glossed over, Lord, would you wake us up from that this morning uh, to hear from you? We believe this is a divine event for you to have your word preached. And so, Lord, we ask to hear from you, not from me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you're late to the game here, um, we've been going through a sermon series called The Jesus I Never Knew. And, and the point of this sermon series is to uh, reveal a different side of Jesus that you, you may have thought you knew, but uh, obviously haven't. Um, it's to Our goal is to show you something you hadn't seen from him before, or even maybe reveal that you've left Jesus behind. You thought you had uh, a part of him, you, you knew the gospel, then you look back and you go, I've left Jesus behind, I've left the gospel behind, or maybe I have never even been a Christian. 
And so we're going to show you portions of uh, the four Gospels that kind of reveal this to you. And for the last few weeks, we've been uh, seeing Jesus on top of a mountain, um, which I joke, but it's actually a big deal. Jesus is on top of the mountain. He's, on, he's, he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, right? And it's not just a sermon on a mountain. It doesn't tell us which mountain it is here, but it, it gives us the definite article, the mountain. And then we see Jesus on the mountain unpacking the Ten Commandments in a more real, fuller way. And so for Matthew's Jewish audience, they're thinking, this is the second Moses. So Jesus is, is now coming, and he is, he's showing himself to be the, the better Moses, the, the fulfillment of it. Jesus is saying, I, this is a big deal. The law that I'm coming to bring to you is something that we started a long time ago, but now here's the ultimate antitype. Moses was just a shadow of me. What Moses was trying to reveal is now fully revealed in this Sermon on the Mount. And so now we're kind of getting it for real. And so Jesus is speaking to the group about the law, and he's saying, you, you have once heard it said, and he goes through a couple different things. He says, you once heard it said, do not murder, but I now tell you, don't even hate your, don't even be angry with your brother. You know, do not commit adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But now I say, don't even look lustfully uh, at, at a woman or a man. And so Jesus is now unpacking this. He goes on to talk about divorce. He talks about oaths. And then last week, Jesus talked about jerks or jerkitude, straight from Jesus' mouth, right? <laughs> I don't know if that was there. It was about retaliation, but yes, I love the word jerkitude. Um, and so that brings us to this week. And now Jesus says, you've heard it say, Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Does that strike you as odd? Where is that passage? We, we know Jesus, the second commandment says, love your, love your neighbor as yourself, right? But where does it say, hate your enemy? Where is that at? It's not in Scripture, is it? <laughs> There's portions of Scripture that sound like that, right? I mean, there's the, there's the imprecatory psalms, which is the, uh, these, these psalms where the, the writer, the author, the poet, uh, the songwriter is, is, is praying some pretty spiteful things. Uh, you can think of Psalm 10 where it says, um, break the arm of the wicked. He's praying to God. To, have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed to God to break someone's arm? Oh, Lord, most high, <laughs> exalted in your kingdom, break Jeffrey Hatton's arm. In thou name, amen. <laughs> I sure hope that doesn't happen. Um, but it's in there, right? It's in Scripture that there's these prayers like that. Then there's the, the Canaanite extermination uh, where we are, we are taking out a whole group of people. And so you see the whole group of people being erased off the earth. And so what we see sometimes in Scripture is that a passion for God is sometimes rivaled by a passion against God's enemies, a love for God, a love for God and his people means a love against enemies of God and enemies of his people. And so that's where they got the love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And this makes sense to us on, on some level, right? When you can say things like, you know, I can be mean to my brother, but you can't be mean to my brother. You know, I, I, I can be mean to my family, but if you say something about my mom, you're dead, <laughs> right? There, there is this love for some. When you love someone near you, there's also a love to protect them from others. And so there, 
in a sense, when we start actually loving our neighbors well, it almost pushes us to hate our na- those that hate our neighbors' enemies. Um, it almost pushes us to be inclined towards hating our neighbors' enemies. And this is kind of what forms patriotism. I love these people, but not those people over there, right? And so this is, the, this is sounds, sounds logical, um, but here Jesus is now explaining the fuller meaning. He says, he's not contrasting, um, saying, this was part of the, the Old Testament, and let me tell you the fuller meaning. He's actually contrasting himself and saying, let me distance myself from the hating your enemies part. He says, you've heard it say, love your neighbors, but hate your enemies. Let me tell you exactly what that is. But the Pharisees in that day asked the question of Jesus, who is our neighbor? The Pharisees are trying to figure out, all right, I can love my neighbor if I can figure out who my neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? Who can I reduce the law to so I can love these people and not those people? And so they took the, the, the second law of God very seriously, right? That means the Pharisees, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, Right? They, they took it very seriously, but they wanted to reduce the scope to only those who were like them. And so the key to this passage is, who is our neighbor? It makes life simple when you can divide the world into us and them, right? Very easy when you can say, these people I get, those people, no. Th- those people are wrong. I love these people. God hates those people. I hate those people. Right? That, that's very, that becomes easier for us. We can say, I'm really good at loving people <laughs> in that regard. The problem with hatred, though, is it always sees the problem with the other person. The problem with hatred is that it always sees the chief problem with, with our enemies and not ourselves. And we can say, it's always their fault, not our fault. And this is what, this self-righteousness is what drives crusades, and, right? And, and, and to, to always um, try to bring them into the better knowledge of what we have here. A guy named Frederick Bruner says, sectarian Christians today seriously doubt that there are real Christians in groups other than their own. You ever think about that? Sectarian or divided Christians, those that want to be divisive, would say, there's only Christians in this church. Go down the road, there are no Christians there. Go down the road, there's no Christians over there. Do you ever, do you ever doubt that, that there's Christians in these ter- certain types of churches? If so, he's saying, you have a good grasp on loving your neighbor, but not your enemies, not those who are unlike you. But Jesus answers the question in Luke 10 when uh, they actually ask him, who is my neighbor? There's a a lawyer that goes up to Jesus and says, who is my neighbor? Remember the the, the story of the... um, the good or the compassionate Samaritan, it's prompted by this. There's a lawyer that goes up to Jesus and says, how can I get into heaven? And Jesus gets the man to say, uh, you know, he has to, has to love God and love his neighbor. But then that man asks, this lawyer says, but, but who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells him the story of the good Samaritan in a way to sh- shut this guy up and say, who is my neighbor? It's anyone that's in need. Anyone that's in need, regardless of race, regardless of of socioeconomic status, it's anyone who is in need is my neighbor. And so Jesus is saying everyone is our neighbor in this sense. And so love your neighbor is loving anyone. But even if we don't get that, even if we don't buy that, and we say, no, but there are, I, I do have real enemies. 
Jesus goes as far as saying, love your enemies in this passage today. He says something crazy. <laughs> when some of us have arch enemies, do you have an arch enemy? I mean, when we think of that in like superhero shows and things like that, but there's usually one or two people in your life that can be considered an arch nemesis to you. They hate the things that you love. They love the things that you hate. They hate you. Usually you hate them, right? Sometimes we don't have, we don't, maybe we don't have that arch nemesis. I think a lot of us, we have kind of the day-to-day enemies. Um, and this is why I asked you at the beginning, who is your felt enemy? So I think a lot of times we're just too polite when we say like, no, I love everyone, but that boy is crazy. <laughs> or like, I just love all of God's children, but that woman is a serial killer. She's crazy. <laughs> I mean, and so we have these enemies that we don't want to say it because we want to be polite, but secretly in the back doors, we, we, we are hating them and we, we consider them enemies. Um, we don't want to think it, but there are. Last week, we talked about the occasional evil, about the jerks, just kind of the occasional this is, this is now talking about the entrenched evil, the entrenched enemy. And so what does it mean to love your enemies? Well, the love word there is the agape love, and that's this love that is, uh, it's, it's not only a matter of emotion. It's not just like if you feel bubbly about them. It's this, it's this decision, uh, this attitude that determines your behavior towards them, a decision to love them. I'm choosing to love them regardless of how they respond to me, is this agape love, which is the same type of love that Christ loves us with, right? And so it says, I will love you no matter what. And when you, lo- when you love someone like that, when your love no longer is dependent on that person to change, something transformative happens. When you can love someone without waiting for them to respond to your love. Something transformative happens. It happens to them and to you. To them, they actually feel real, genuine love. They actually feel that agape love. And for you, you are now not enslaved to how they respond. You are now able to love no matter what they do to you. You can love them regardless if they love the things that you hate. But you start thinking like, of extremes, and you think like, but what if, what if they hate the things God hates? What if it's blatant sin? What if they make me feel terrible? What if they hurt me? And Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, to fix our love on them no matter what. And then he gives us a very practical way of doing this. In verse 44, he says, pray for them. If you get in your mind that enemy you're thinking about, praying for them sounds really tough. I mean, what's that going to do? I, I think if, if, we're, if we're honest, if, you, if we here are reformed and we believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is so completely in control that he is even sovereign even over our salvation, and it's all his work, if we believe that is the type of God we have, that he's that sovereign, then prayer is a no-brainer. Because nothing speaks and shouts the sovereignty of God more than prayer. That says, I can't do it. I need someone else to do it. 
When you are praying, you're saying, I'm helpless. I cannot do it. I need you to step in. Step into this enemy of mine. And I think if anyone who scoffs at the Reformed theology of saying, that's just oppressive, that you would, you would pray for God to intercede and interrupt someone's will. And I'm thinking, absolutely. I don't want my brother to continue after the path he's going. I want God to interrupt his will and grab him and reach him. Please, Lord. B.B. Warfield's description of Calvinism is this. Christianity on its knees. You hear that, Malcolm? Have you used that? <laughs> Calvinism is Christianity on its knees. Saying, God, we can't do it. You are so sovereign. I need you to do it. Why is that oppressive? Because it's all his work? That's what our, we're tiling our prayer night, God at work. Because we believe there's something we cannot do. We need him to do it, and we are asking him to, to, to be the one in charge, and we're saying, God, we need you to do it. And we are praying for God to be at work and to do what he's already doing, for us to actually buy into what he's doing. And so we must pray. And I think prayer can get this bad rap because I think we, we, we steal the thunder away from prayer when we, when we pray for just meaningless things or like, a, uh, what do we call it, maintenance prayers of, um, oh, Lord, please take my cold away, <laughs> uh, things like this. When we can be praying, Lord, let the kingdom come and reach and be a gospel movement and, and reach the, uh, the lost, those that hate you, that they would actually become to love you because you, he can do that. And so when we love our enemy, we pray for them. And a lot of times we, we think of loving our enemy as just like tolerating them. Like, all right, I won't be mean to you in front of you. I'll tolerate you. <laughs> but loving your enemy, praying for them, praying that they would actually become a believer and actually join you in heaven for eternity. Now that's different. You may be thinking, all right, I'll bide my time with them before they, they finish their, their schooling and graduate and move away. I'll buy my time till they, they get uh, called up on or whatever it may be. But if you're praying that God would reach them, you're praying that they would join you at the hip in heaven. That's tough. You're saying, I'm loving them. I'm going to love them. I want them to always be in my life. That sounds terrible, right? But as you pray for your enemies in this way, you get this kingdom perspective that all the, the hurt that comes upon you, all the pain, all, the, all the, the hurtful remarks, all the ways they've sinned against you, you start realizing it's not just sins against you, it's sins against God. And as you're praying for them, you're realizing like, God's retribution is going to be far worse than my retribution to them, and so I can pray for them. And so it gives us this kingdom perspective and changes our view of them. And verse 45 says something that we sometimes scoff at and says, God loves everybody. Verse 45 says, God loves everyone on earth. The sun shines on the good people and on the bad people. It, sh it sunshines and, and loves both the, the good and the evil people. And this is what we call common grace, right? That God actually loves the evil people enough to let their crops grow. Loves them enough to... to let them have joy in life and to, to be happy. 
So God calls you and I to love enemies no differently than he does. He treats his enemies quite well. In fact, God loves the bad guys so much that he dies for them, right? All right, now let me have an honest moment with you. Does this seem hard? I feel like everyone's saying yes. Does this seem hard? If you think this is hard, let's make it worse. I think you may not be a Christian. If loving your enemy seems hard, you may not be a Christian. Because of what the whole Sermon on the Mount is trying to tell us is that it's impossible. You heard that it said, do not kill. Now let me tell you, don't even be angry with your brother. You've heard that it said, do not commit adultery. Now don't even have wandering eyes. If someone slaps you, let them slap you twice. And now, love your enemies. Love the beast. Love the monster. And then just to be clear how impossible it is, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean... The whole point of his Sermon on the Mount is to drive you to your knees and say, Lord, I can't do it. Do you feel it? I mean, as I read this passage, I think, I can't do that. I can, I can nod my head and say, yeah, I'm loving my enemy, but I'm really not loving my enemy, if I'm being honest. And so if you think loving your neighbor is doable, either you're just not being honest or you may not be a Christian because if you think it's doable, then you, realize, you don't realize the depravity of your heart and how dark it may be or is. And say, that is impossible, love. I can't do it. And that's exactly right. That's what Jesus is trying to do to drive you to your knees and say, I need you, Jesus. I can't do it. You're being real with the situation at hand when you do that. Saying it's impossible, love, that Jesus is calling us to is the first step. Jesus gives us the law and says it's higher than you think, right? This whole, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we, we want to think of it this way, maybe a very practical way, and say, Jesus is going to say, okay, here's the law. If you do this, you get to heaven. How about this? If you can jump over this pulpit, you go to heaven. That seems kind of hard, right? Anyone think they can just jump over like that, that seems kind of hard. You might get a running start and you could dive over and hurt yourself. But you think, it would be hard, but I could do it. Or maybe say, okay, what about jumping over this piano? That, that also seems a little hard and I would probably fall into the wall. Um, but it seems hard, but maybe I could do it. Now Jesus says the law is not just hard, it's impossible. It's like me asking you to jump through that stained glass window without breaking the window. Do that and you go to heaven. Now you're on your knees and saying, Lord, I can't do it. Love your enemies. Is that difficult? It's that impossible. He's calling us to impossible love. It's going to take a miracle, right? He's still calling you to do it. He's still calling you to jump through the window. <laughs> He's still calling you to love your enemies. But God's in the business of miracles, right? Uh, a while ago, a couple years ago, my wife and I were... Uh, living in North Carolina, and one of our favorite vacationing spots was Charleston, South Carolina. Beautiful place. Beaches are awesome. But one year ago today, or this past summer, in Charleston, 
at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church at 9 p.m. They had an evening Bible study, a lot like our midweek. And there was a 21-year-old white kid named Dylan Roof who was invited into this congregation and invited to come back that evening. And he not only unloaded hurtful and racist remarks, he unloaded and sprayed bullets into this church and killed nine people at their Bible study. I mean, if you're in that church, what's your response? I mean, just to, to, to feel the, the racially charged hatred from this kid. How can you not want to hate him? But Christianity was on display when two days later, at Dylan Roof's bond hearing, members of this congregation go to the bond hearing and speak directly to him and say, a woman named Nadine Collier, who was the daughter of Ethel Lance, who was 70 when she died, and she says, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me, and I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. And the congregation goes on. It spurs this, this movement of grace and love to this kid. Felicia Sanders, the mother of Taiwanza Sanders, who was 26, she says, We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with welcome arms. You've killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber of my body hurts, and I'll never be the same. Taiwanza Sanders was my son, but Taiwanza Sanders was my hero. May God have mercy on you. Could you do that? Could you respond to hatred with love? The church here quenched this man's hatred with love. Love your enemies is just so difficult. It's impossible. And we see Jesus does that for us, right? He says, while you were still sinning in Romans 5, while you were still committing hate crimes against my son, I forgive you. And I love you with impossible love that just doesn't make sense. That's the miracle. God doesn't say, I don't want no justice. He still wants justice for those families, and we want that. But he's also, he also, we, also we want that for them. But he's now saying, these families are saying, I love you, and I want forgiveness for you spiritually. And God doesn't say, I don't take justice that seriously. He's saying, I take it so seriously that I have my son die for you. I take justice seriously, and I take forgiveness seriously that I love you enough to die for you with an impossible love. And so this morning, be honest. We can't do it. Let this text bring you to your knees and say, God, I cannot do it. I can't love this person. I need you to do it. I need you to change my heart. And then pray for that person. 
pray, thy kingdom come in their life. And slowly that will bring together the splinter that's in y'all's relationship. Maybe you can be like Nadine in Charleston and you can actually tell the person that you should hate, I love you and I forgive you. Maybe you can quench their hatred with Christ's love because Christ has quenched the wrath of God the Father with Christ's love. What a beautiful thing that is. Let's go before the Lord praying. God, we need you to step in. We want to apply this sermon right now. God, we need you. We can't do it. Lord, we pray for our enemies right now. 